0: Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. As always we got Pooty and Pastor Nathaniel Wright in the studio. I just went full name there. Is that okay? I didn't throw out your middle name because I don't know how comfortable you are saying middle names on air
1: as if they can't find me, which is my <laughs> first name, last name, the city that I live in, my social media, my wife's name. Yeah. Nate's social security. <laughs> yeah, number exactly. is, that's fine. Um, yeah. So we are the rebel podcast, but we have something uh, a little different for you today. Um, we just, uh, we, we have a bunch of things coming up on, on, uh, the itinerary for the rebels. Um, we're, we're doing a couple series and, uh, we're going to talk about that in just a second. So today, actually what you're going to hear is a sermon that I preached, uh, recently at Crossroads Church. Uh, we've spent this entire year studying through the book of Acts. So this is one of the sermons from the book of Acts and uh, I hope you enjoy that. Um, So we'll leave you with that so that we have some time to just plan and prepare and work out these series. Yeah. Um, So these series that were, where are we going first, Chris? The
0: the first one, we actually, one of our fellow rebels suggested this series to us and so it it percolated for a little bit and we've decided we're going to do it. We're actually going to walk through um, some, not all, of the parables of Jesus and how that applies to us, our culture, theologically and just kind of work you guys through a lot of those parables. Um, we're still working. I'm not going to spoil which ones we're going to do and which ones we're not, but we're going to work through some of the parables of scripture.
1: Yep. Um, that's the first series. And 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 just because I mean, we do everything to kind of uh, equip you to engage culture with the biblical worldview, we think that the parables of Jesus were, um, obviously this is one of the ways that he chose to teach. And so one of the things that he was doing is he was, he was making his theology accessible to the culture in which he was talking. So that's one of the reasons we think that these parables um, kind of hit our niche so well, and the other thing is that I think um, the parables of Jesus are often misunderstood. Big time. I think a lot of times they're they're read as sort of Aesop's fables, like little morality lessons, and I think G- Jesus was far more specific. Mm-hmm. And uh, and far more theologically rich than we give them credit for. These weren't just moral tales for like how to be good boys and girls, um, but these were actually like very rich stories with with deep theology prophecy, uh, all kinds of things that were meant for those who could understand them. And and we'll get into that in the first episode. (laughs) um, What uh, what it looked like to engage their culture in their day and what what the truths that Jesus was teaching them had to do with the culture that they lived in
0: and and how they progress, how they how they kind of work together. It's not they're not one off little, like how we, how we typically read them right. as one-off, like, oh, that's a great lesson for this sermon or right. this, this teaching where, where they, there's a progression to them. And I think we're going to, I think it's going
1: to be fun. I, yep. That's
0: all I'm going to say. I think, I hope you guys enjoy it. So that'll um, be
1: a little mini series. it will be the parables of Jesus and, and how uh, Jesus engaged culture through his parables. And then the next one is actually one that Chris has been uh, working on. I guess I, it's hard to say working on because we haven't actually done anything with it, but like, he's been, he's been like making <laughs> I've been flow pushing charts that you it, like flowcharts And like, uh, for those of you who don't know, Microsoft Excel is like Pootie's thing. And so like color coded Excel spreadsheets and everything, like great fonts, great fonts, great (laughs) color usage, um, all that kind of stuff. But basically, um, you've wanted to do an apologetics series, but not just apologetics in terms of how to defend your face. So, so talk a little bit about your idea. Yeah. So finally going to do it
0: a, a while ago, I think it was last year. Um, in the, in the spring, we did like a kind of just a really brief apologetic series.
1: And just how to talk and how to engage. Exactly.
0: Just how to engage people at work, how to engage your, your friends, your family, what is, what is apologetics, all all those things. And that, and that series we've had tons of feedback in terms of people saying it was useful. It was, it was good asking for more. So what we came up with um, and what we've, what's been laid on us to do is kind of a more specific apologetic series. So what we want to do is we want to specifically talk about how to engage different Ethnic groups, different religious views, different people's worldview, specifically, and talk and apol like give them a Christian apologetic to share the gospel with those people. Um, so, for instance, how to engage somebody who is a Jehovah Witness, how to engage somebody who is a Muslim, how to engage somebody who's an atheist, specifically, how to share your faith, how to engage your culture, because the truth is. These are the people we work with. Right. In your workplace, wherever you are, if you're working in a factory, an office building, chances are you're sitting beside somebody who holds a very different worldview than you do. Right. What is it? What do they believe? What is. And how does the gospel speak to that? And, and,
1: then, and just in case that intimidates you a little bit, here's here's kind of one of the big ideas from that series. You don't have to be an expert in Islam in order to talk no, to a of Muslim. Not. You don't have to be an expert in Mormon theology or lack thereof to engage <laughs> <laughs> to engage with a Mormon. Like um, you know, what we're gonna kind of talk about is is a few inroads, a, a few commonalities, a few discommonalities, a few um, a, a points of interest to to kind of make sure you hit in the conversation. But this is all conversational. It's all relational. It's not just yeah. a bunch of information for you to spew out. It's it's really about trying to make you an apologist, and then just apply um, specific worldviews um, and and how to how to kind of uh, break the ice with them. I guess.
0: Yeah, it's not a it's not a disproving those right. those things. We don't have to disprove the burden of proof isn't like the Bible is the word of god it's the truth we don't have to okay. disprove anything to prove our point this is more so like you like you're saying just helping you engage these people right. um and i think it i think it'll be very helpful we hope yep. um and we hope you guys enjoy it um and that's the a second big series that we're kind of wanting to go through yep. in the fall we don't know when we'll start that but it's yep. on the pl- it's, now that we've said it we have to do it
1: so. yeah and well and here's the thing so we have a couple of guests um in mind um but here's what i would say so uh we want you to listen to the rest of this episode which is a sermon um, listen to it Um, but what we want you to engage with with comments um, is Tell us if there are particular worldviews that you would like us to make sure we hit in that that series. Mm -hmm. And even if you have an idea of what guest you might like to hear on a particular thing, let us know who that is. And maybe even tag them in this episode. So on Twitter or whatever, tag them in this episode um, and say that you'd like to hear so and so on such and such a topic. And that'll just help kind of guide us a little bit because we want that to be helpful for you. Because again, these are your coworkers, your neighbors, you know, the people in your neighborhood and we want to help equip you to engage them with a biblical worldview.
0: Yeah, and if you happen to know James White, tell him to respond to our emails. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that's sort of not a joke. joke. That's, that's not, not a joke. A joke. Not a joke all, all right, uh, <laughs> so that's it. Uh, enjoy enjoy this, and uh, we'll see you next week.
0: Hi everyone. This is Ryan at the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, and I want to let you know about a couple of events going on this month at the EICC Center in Grimsby, Ontario. First up on September 26th, we're hosting a leadership roundtable event for pastors, teachers, and ministry leaders. Then on September 28th, two days later, we're hosting a general admission escarpment lecture. Dr. Jerry Bergman of the Institute for Creation Research is going to be our special guest speaker for both of these, and he'll be talking about the historical impact of Darwinian evolutionary theory on the way that we understand human identity, and how to evaluate that in the light of God's eternal word. You can find more information and register for these events by visiting
1: www.ezrainstitute.ca slash events, and we hope to see you there. So we are in this series in the book of Acts called Turn the World Upside Down. And uh, that title is taken from Acts chapter 17 when Paul and Silas were accused of doing just that. And uh, what we've been talking about in the book of Acts in our first few weeks through this is that the book of Acts is the narrative of how Jesus' followers began to turn the world right side up. That through the power of the Holy Spirit and through their actions and through uh, their evangelism and through the spreading of the gospel and the growing of the kingdom, the book of Acts uh, lists the things that uh, begin to happen as the gospel begins to transform the world around Galilee and around Jerusalem. And So that's the big story. That's what we're working our way through in the book of Acts. And today we get into Acts chapter 2, and uh, the sermon title this morning is Reversing Babel. And uh, we'll get into that in just a moment. But Acts chapter 2 is where we will find our text. You can open your Bibles and follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in one of the seats in front of you. I would encourage you to grab that. Find the book of Acts and follow along in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to go all the way to 21, and we'll see how much of it we can talk about this morning. So Acts chapter 2, this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire, as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language." And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Uh, Pamphylia, uh, Egypt, and all the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytites, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Joel, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're gonna stop there, right in the middle of Peter's bold sermon, and uh, we'll pick up the rest of it uh, next week. But this moment in historical In in history, this moment in redemptive history is a big one. And I want you to see that the book of Acts actually starts off with two kind of um, ground shaking historical moments that are of the utmost importance to believers. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the ascension and what that meant historically, what that meant for redemptive history, that Christ went back up to heaven, received the kingdom of God, sat at the right hand of the Father, and watched as his people carried out his mission on the earth. We talked about that. And here's the second big event, Pentecost. And I want you to understand, so first of all, um, when the day of Pentecost arrived, Pentecost was uh, essentially the the Feast of the Harvest. It's one of the uh, feasts that God commanded his people to observe, and one of the feasts that everybody, all the devout Jews would actually pilgrimage, they would actually head back to Jerusalem during this time. And so that's one of the reasons that you have all of these people who are in Jerusalem who all speak different languages because they're coming from all over the place to worship God and observe the festival, uh, the Feast of the Harvest in Jerusalem. And so that's why you have all of these people who are gathered there and, and hold on to that because that's that's important for uh, as we unpack uh, the, the meaning of this. The next thing that you uh, see here is that the divided tongues like fire that look like fire, that's how Luke has chosen to describe this, come down and rest on each person and they each begin to speak. And you have to think about this in just a moment. So they're speaking and all of the people who are gathered who are from outside of Jerusalem are hearing their own native languages. So what they're hearing As the disciples begin to speak in tongues, what they are hearing is the languages of the pagan nations. Speaking of, it says, the mighty works of God. That's important. That's the second thing that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. So as they're speaking, everybody gets confused. Do you notice I I always laugh when I I get to this point that uh, many people, it says others mock. So some were amazed and perplexed and others were mocking it. And they said they're filled with new wine. And I always find it funny that Peter stands up and he says, we're not drunk like you think because it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Like, like that doesn't happen until much later. <laughs> just, ki- just kidding, I don't want to get any emails about that one. But, <clears throat> so he stands up and he says, what's happening here isn't that we're drunk and we're stumbling around and we're talking in crazy talk what's happening here is actually the fulfillment of prophecy. And he says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now remember, one of the things I've highlighted as we've gotten into the book of Acts is that suddenly the disciples who did never seemed to get any of the references that in Jesus's life and ministry and teaching, they never really got, they never started connecting the old Testament to the new. Remember? They, they, they weren't very good at connecting the dots and recognizing that Jesus was bringing the kingdom in a different way, that he was the promised Messiah, that he was going to have to die. They weren't good at connecting all these dots. But post-resurrection, right, Jesus appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, says he broke bread with them, and he, uh, he told them, he says he unfolded the scriptures to them and told them everything that pointed to him. And then it says that he appeared to them in the upper room right? When he was eating fish with them. And again, it says he taught them the scriptures and how everything needed to be fulfilled in him. And so after that time, after these personal Bible studies with Jesus, now the apostles are starting to get it to the point where, (coughs) excuse me, Uh, To the point where in the last chapter, what we looked at last week, was that uh, Peter understood a couple of these obscure references in the book of Psalms that seemed to indicate that they needed to pick a 12th disciple, and we went through that. So the disciples are beginning to use scripture and see the connections in scriptures better. And and the first thing that comes to Peter's mind when this, this amazing event happens, so I want you to picture what's going on. Just just picture it because we, we know this story, but sometimes familiar stories, they lose their effect on us, right? Because we become numb to the details. So it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This is all the, the apostles. This is the 120 that watched Jesus ascend. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So just imagine that. So they're in a house and some mighty rushing wind of some kind. It doesn't say that they felt it, but that they heard it. So there's some sort of gushing, some sort of sound, some sort of something that they recognized as supernatural began to happen around them. And then these little tongues, what looked like a tongue and what looked like fire began to appear over top of people's heads. Strange, And then they begin to speak in these other tongues. And so this this crazy sort of thing is happening, and Peter is able to interpret it in a moment and recognize this is what Joel was talking about. This is what the prophet Joel, in the book of Joel, and you can go there. We don't have time to go there today because there's so much for us to unpack. But this is what the prophet Joel was talking about. And notice what he says. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. When I was reading that this week, I I was... uh, I was thinking about how often we sing songs and we pray prayers that are asking God to do what he's already done, right? We ask God, you know, let the fire fall, fill us one and all. We, we, we sing these songs, we pray these prayers, and the reality is, is that God has done this the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. That's what Peter is saying. In, the last, in these last days, in the last days, it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And what Peter is saying is he's standing up and he's going through all of these prophecies in the book of Joel. He says, all those prophecies, it's about right now. This is what's happening. He understood that in a moment. And so read that. This is, so he connects these dots, that, that physical manifestation, that weird thing that was going on. He says, this is what it's about. God's pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters are now going to prophesy. Young men shall see visions. Old men shall dream dreams. Spirit's going to get poured out on male and female servants. This is what's happening here is the demarcation, demarcation of the Holy Spirit. What's happening here is, I was was going for um, the, uh, I I can't even think of the word, Uh, democracy, democracy. Anyway, what's happening here is that the Holy Spirit is equally going and filling all the people of God. Not just the kings, not just the prophets, not just the priests, not just the people of noble birth, but the servants, the men, the women, everybody in every location is getting imparted with the Holy Spirit. God is breaking down caste systems. He's breaking down gender barriers. He's breaking down everything. And he is pouring out his spirit on all people equally. This is an amazing moment in the history of God's people an amazing moment because in the Old Testament, God divided his people by tribes. In, God's, in the Old Testament, there was a priestly tribe. In the Old Testament, the priest had very specific roles. The prophet had very specific roles. The king had a very specific role. But what's happening here is that the offices in the, of, of God's people in the Old Testament is all getting leveled. It says, all men, all women will prophesy, all will will be priests. This is when God said in the Old Testament that what he wanted was a kingdom of priests, not just just a, a tribe of priests that represented a nation, but a nation of priests. This is what's happening right now. And Peter understands that. So your uh, sons and daughters shall prophesy, young men shall see visions, old men will dream dreams, male servants, female servants, and it says, and I will show the wonders in heaven above and the signs of the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the, blood, uh, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What's interesting here is, um, and we don't have time to go to all of these things, so I'm going to be referencing a a bunch of Old Testament. First one you should say is is Joel. You can go and read that in its context. Um, The other thing that I'll make reference to is um, one of the things that happens uh, very early on is that um, first in Adam and then in Noah, God ordered his people, commanded his people to fill the earth, right? And to... Uh, exercise wise dominion over the earth, right? And so in uh, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, uh, God tells Adam to go, have dominion over the earth, fill the earth and subdue it, right? As God's image bearer, he was saying to Adam and Eve, fill the earth so that my glory as you reflect me, as as you bear my image, as you fill the earth, the earth will be filled with the glory of God. And then to Noah, after uh, he saves Noah and his family, in uh, Genesis chapter 9, I think it's right around verse 7, he says the same thing to Noah. He says, fill the earth and have dominion over it. Once again, what does he want? He wants now this righteous family, now that he's eradicated the evil from the earth, now this righteous family is to fill the earth, once again, as God's image bearers, to fill the earth so the earth is filled with God's glory. And what happens just a couple of short chapters later, just a couple of short chapters after Noah, we're told that the people, instead of going out and filling the earth with the glory of God, it says that they come together and they build a tower up for their own glory, right? The tower of Babel. And this is the story in the old Testament where uh, the people came together in their rebellion against God and began to build up. It says so that they could make a great name for themselves the exact opposite of God's command, which was spread out, fill the earth, and make a great name of my name. Instead, in their rebellion, they congregate together, they build up to glorify themselves. And what does God do in judgment of of their, their rebellion against him, of their literal reversing of his command? it says that he confuses their languages right? He gives them all different, so they couldn't understand each other, and it says that then they spread out, right? So, if they won't, by obedience, spread out and fill the earth, then God will, by giving them different languages, spread them out, so they cannot be united in their rebellion against him, and then what happens? Just the next chapter, God chooses Abraham, and he chooses one people group, one ethnic people group, one tribe, one tongue, I'm going to deal in covenant with these people. And through these people, I'm going to bless the entire world, right? So this is, this, this is the, the backstory. And so what happens is, is God chooses Israel, God blesses Israel, and God always intends for Israel to be the conduit through which his blessing reaches the rest of the earth. Right? We talked about that when we preached, when we uh, studied our way through the book of Jonah, that Jonah uh, goes to Nineveh, this pagan nation, this pagan city, to preach God's blessing to them. And one of the reasons he ran in the opposite direction is because he did not want God's blessing that he thought was meant for Israel to get to the Gentiles. We see that over and over again throughout the Bible to the point where we get to the New Testament and it's the Pharisees who have built up all these fences, all of these things so that other people cannot get the blessing from God that Israel was always supposed to dispense to the rest of the world. And so that's where we get it. And so here, what you can see just by giving you some of that backstory, what you can see is what's happening at at Pentecost is that God is giving the utterance of tongues to his disciples to bring back Together, bring back together, united under one cause, under God's cause, as opposed to uh, coming together in rebellion at Babel. Instead, he is bringing them back together to hear of the mighty works of God. So he's reversing the curse of Babel. And what's so interesting uh, to me in this is that the, the whole point here The whole point of of beginning to reverse the curse is because God is beginning to do something that he's promised to do since the very beginning of the story. Remember, as soon as he called Abraham, he said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So here's today's big idea. Here's what I think Pentecost, the big idea of Pentecost is, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost began the anticipated day when God would unite persons from all nations to praise him. I'll say that one more time. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost began the anticipated day when God would unite persons from all nations to praise him. Remember, it was God who divided the nations at Babel, right? It was God who divided them so they could not be united in the rebellion against him. But God had always promised, and I could go through a whole litany of of passages, and I'll go through a few more later, but Psalm 86 verse 9, Psalm 86 verse 9 says, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And the Psalms are full of these kinds of promises, that the nations will turn back to God. Zechariah 14:16 is another example of that. The Psalms are, and, and then the Psalms are just um, littered with all of these promises. So Psalm 86, 9 again, just listen to these words. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. That's what God began to do at Pentecost. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at uh, at Pentecost began that anticipated day when God would unite persons from all nations to praise him. I want you to just, uh, this is a a bit of a longer quote, so I apologize. But just listen to this from, um, I, I couldn't figure out how to condense it. It's just, just too good. Um, R.C. Sproul is a, uh, is a scholar who uh, just recently passed away, actually, and uh, many of us uh, are very indebted to his teaching ministry throughout uh, his entire life. But R.C. Sproul said this, at the dawning of the new covenant era, Pentecost would be demonstrative of a similar work of creation, or better yet, a re Fallen humanity is to be transformed by the spirit to a degree unknown under the old covenant. So you're catching this, that God is doing something new at Pentecost that he's never done and was not able to do under the old covenant. Those are big words. Let's see if Sproul can back them up. In an action that was meant to be symbolic of Pentecost, Jesus, in an incident that followed his resurrection, illustrated Pentecost's significance by breathing on his disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. You remember this story? It's in John chapter 20, that kind of weird moment where Jesus just breathes on his disciples, which if you picture actually happening, you think is weird. But if you understand what happens later on in the story, you see this, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. The action is a reminder of the opening sequence of Genesis. The Holy Spirit, the breath of God, is the agent of the breath of life in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. As God breathed life into Adam, so Jesus, the last Adam, breathes new life into his people. Jesus becomes, in Paul's language, a life-giving spirit. Pentecost was A historical event signifying the dawn of a new era of human history. Midway between creation and recreation, Pentecost is the point after which it can be said the end of the ages has dawned. That's 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. Historically, at 9 o'clock in the morning, the Spirit gave the, uh, the disciples a clear understanding of Jesus' role in redemption and consummation, equipping them with extraordinary boldness in making Jesus known. The gift of tongues that accompanied the outpouring of the Spirit enabled folk from different countries to hear the gospel in their own language. In an instant, the curse of Babel was arrested. Spirit-empowered disciples were thus motivated and enabled to take the message of reconciliation to the nations of the world in the certainty that God would accomplish that which he promised." What appears to be a blessing for the Gentiles proves to be a judgment upon Israel. The very sound of the gospel in languages other than their own, uh, their own confirm the covenant thread of God that God issued in Isaiah, Isaiah 28, verse 11. "For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord shall speak to His people." This was the dawning of the age when God was taking His blessing through Israel to the ends of the earth. The time always predicted in the Old Testament when God would gather from all corners of the earth people from every tongue and every tribe and unite them under the banner of Jesus Christ so that his glory would indeed fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. So what R.C. Sproul is saying in his long-winded, he was a pastor, pastoral away is essentially that this is a historic moment because it's something that God had always promised and all of these little markers were, were um, uh, hints to us about what God was going to do. And what we see at Pentecost is God pouring out his spirit on his church so that he could begin to gather once again the people that he always intended to have for himself. Throughout all of the Old Testament, he would talk jealously of Israel, you are mine. This is why God would not tolerate idolatry. This is why God would not tolerate them worshiping other gods. This is why God would not tolerate the apostasy of Israel, because they were His. And what happens at Pentecost is God is expanding the um, His fingerprint. If God places His finger on the nation of Israel and says, "Mine." What's happening at Pentecost is he's expanding that fingerprint to cover the entire earth. He's saying, get me all of it. I want all of them in on this. And we should be so thankful for that because we are here because of that. We are here, none of us, I don't, know, I don't know all of you personally, but most of us, if not all of us, none of us ethnic Jews, and yet we are here today worshiping the Jewish Messiah because of this moment when God said, I want more than just one nation. I want more than just one people group. I want more than just one tribe. I want everybody on earth to bow the knee before me. I want my glory known everywhere, not just in Israel. And that's what he did. That's what Pentecost is. I want to read you just a couple of passages here. This is Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. We are in the middle of that verse. We are not near the end. We are not at the end of that verse. The end of the verse is talking about uh, peace and freedom, f- complete freedom from war. Knowing that Pentecost happened in the Middle East and everything that's going on right now, we know we're not at the end of that verse yet. But what we know is that God has started to do just that. He has lifted up His law. It's gone forth from Israel, gone forth from Jerusalem at this moment in Pentecost empowering a group of people who would later be spread. And what's so interesting is that the command from here is to go, right? Jesus says, go back to Jerusalem. He says, go, right? Make, uh, make disciples of every nation, baptize them, teach them obedience. That's what he says. But he says, don't go anywhere until you receive power in Jerusalem. So logically, it follows then. Once you receive power in Jerusalem, go. Go get me the nations, and what's so interesting is that uh, the disciples don't really get that part. They're just having a lot of fun with, with uh, uh, evangelism uh, in Jerusalem, and then God actually end, ends up sending persecution to scatter the church so that they, they go. So here we see the beginning of the promises to, in Isaiah. Chapter two. Here's Isaiah, chapter sixty. Arise and shine, for your light has come. It's talking about Christ, the light coming into the world, the light of the world coming into darkness. Arise, shine. Your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you; His glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see; they all. Gather together and they come to you. And so we see these promises in the Old Testament about this time when God is going to begin to gather not just Israel, not just his ethnic uh, people chosen under the Old Covenant, but under the New Covenant, he's going to gather together people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation because that's how his glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. So let's just take this and work it out. So there's the big idea. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost began the anticipated day when God would unite persons from all nations to praise him. A couple of um, uh, thoughts to kind of hang off that big idea. The first is this. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus broke the power of sin's curse. The Holy Spirit empowers Christ's followers to reverse the curse across the globe. So what I mean by that is that at the cross, Jesus dealt the death blow, right? We've talked about this many times, so I apologize if this is uh, redundant to some of you, but for those of you who haven't heard it, we uh, talk often about how Jesus was crucified on a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, and I think what we're supposed to get from that is that at the very beginning, when sin entered the world, when the curse entered the world in the garden, the very first promise God made was that hit, that um, the, uh, the offspring of the woman and offspring of Eve would come, whose heel would crush the head of the serpent. And so when Jesus is... is um, Uh, crucified on Golgotha on the place of the skull. What we recognize symbolically is happening there, what's happening literally in the in the spiritual realm is that Satan is getting his head crushed. The curse is beginning to be reversed. And if we want more proof of that, what happens is that uh, the curse enters the world in a garden, right? Adam and Eve are disobedient in a garden and eat of the fruit. And the curse begins to be reversed in a garden as Jesus is resurrected in the garden tomb, right? Jesus, in fact, the very first time anybody sees him um, by Mary, uh, she mistakes him for a gardener. She, she thinks he's a gardener before he begins to speak to her and reveal himself to her. And so we see that Jesus began the work of reversing the curse. And when we think about reversing the curse, I want you to think about all the things that sin brought with it into the world. Right? So, separation from God, the entanglement of sin, the slavery to sin. With it came death, and disease, and hardship, and toil. It says thorns and thistles began to uh, infest the ground. And all of these things are the result of the curse entering the world because sin entered the world. And so what happens at the cross is Jesus begins to reverse the curse. He makes it possible to reverse the curse. And then here, the Holy Spirit empowers Christ's followers to reverse the curse across the globe. I think one of the reasons that we see they begin to speak in other tongues is to, to, to give people, get people thinking about Babel and the reversal of that particular curse. Another curse that came into the world because of sin. And so God's people are empowered to speak in other tongues, reversing the curse of Babel, showing that Jesus began the work of reversing the curse and his people are continuing the work of reversing the curse. And so part of our mandate as Christians, the mandate to, to Adam and the mandate to Noah have not stopped, right? Have dominion over the earth, subdue the earth, rule over the earth not rule yourself as the king, but rule as ambassadors of the king. That's, that's our mandate as Christians. And so what does that look like? It looks like reversing the curse. What are some of the things that uh, sin brought into the world with it? <coughs> Sickness is one of them. And so historically, what have Christians done throughout the ages? They've cared for the sick Throughout the uh, dark ages, whenever a plague would enter a city, it was everybody left the city and the Christians went into the city to bind up those who were affected by the plague, to minister to them, to preach the gospel to them, to read them their last rites. That's what the Christians have done historically. In Rome, when they uh, started putting caps on how many children uh, people in the capital could have, and then women would bear children and throw them into the river, it was the the Christians who fished the babies out of the river and began to raise them. That's how Christians became so involved in orphanages early on in our history. And so what else became um, difficult in the curse. Well, childbearing is difficult. Not just physically difficult, not just the pain of that, but the emotional. And, and look at the attitude that our world has against, child, uh, about, against childbearing. We're we're told to to have less children. We're told only to have as many children as we can afford. We're told if we don't want that children to just abort them and to throw them away. Well, historically, when that was happening in Rome, they didn't have abortion procedures that we had, so they would just throw them into the river. It was the Christians who gathered them up, Christians who are, are, uh, in effect, reversing the curse that sin brought into the world. One of the other things that uh, sin brought into the world with it was all of the confusion and, right, the confusion of the languages and things like that. Uh, historically, it's been Christians who have started schools and started universities. Look at almost any year university in Europe or in North America, and you'll see that on their foundational documents, on their foundations, uh, even in the architecture. Uh, you know, at Harvard Law... Uh, over the, the very first building that was erected, there's two pillars on either side. And one uh, in Latin says truth and the other says justice. And, and what they understood, and then you go up and there's a verse, uh, I, th- I believe it's Micah 6:8, but don't quote me on that. But there's a verse of scripture and, and essentially what they recognize that the only pillars for us to educate anyone is the truth of God and the justice of God. And that's what this university is dedicated to. Well, trust me, Harvard Law has, has fallen far from that. But historically, it has been Christians who, through our effort and through our love and through our social justice and through our efforts in our communities, have begun to reverse the curse. What's one of the curses that were—or we're, uh, one effect of the curse— that we're experiencing here and now. It's the disintegration of the family, right? We're seeing that in the culture all around us. Why is it that we would go and, and, and not not to get, we're not taking up an offering, we're not uh, taking an altar call at family day? Why are we going? Because investing in families and giving them an opportunity to be together and, and, and to send them home with some ideas of how to bring their families together is a work at reversing the curse. So it's Christian's job to begin to reverse the curse. We saw the, uh, the reversal of the curse uh, of Babel and there are many other effects of sin that Christians need to put their hands to begin to reverse. A second thing to know is that the Holy Spirit is not a power or an abstraction. He is a person who takes hold of us and uses us for the purposes of God. I think one of the sad things uh, One thing that's sad about how we understand this story, the story of Pentecost, is that we make it all about that time when the church got power, right? That time when the Holy Spirit came and and suddenly from there became became all the miraculous signs of healing and prophecy and all these sorts of things. And so as Christians, we think about it, Pentecost equals power, and one of the things that I don't think we, we recognize that the, is that the Holy Spirit that was poured out, that you can, you can pull all of the verses about the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. And what you'll understand is that the Holy Spirit is not a power. It's not, uh, it's not like at Pentecost, all of a sudden we realized that we were force sensitive and we're suddenly able to use the force like Jedis. That's, that's not what's happening there. The, the Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not an ab- abstraction. The Holy Spirit is a person a person who takes hold of God's people and uses them for the purposes of God. And so it's important for us to know that this wasn't an outpouring of power, it was a person, a person who now comes to us, a person who is available to us, the the third member of the triune God who lives on the earth amongst the people of God. (coughs) The, The last thing to know, and this kind of bleeds into the same point, is that the power of the Holy Spirit is for the evangelization of the world. And every manifestation is meant for that end. So again, because we think of the Holy Spirit as a, an ab- abstract power as opposed to a person, we think that he comes upon us in order to give us power to do stuff. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. The Holy Spirit the power of the Holy Spirit is for the evangelization of the world. We have to recognize that. We can't, we can't divorce this from its context. The Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people, and he was poured out on God's people. They began to speak in other tongues so that people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation could hear, it says, of the mighty works of God. Again, I think in order to really understand this, we have to have our, our, our full story Bible glasses on. We have to understand it in context of the story. So um, in, uh, in the temple, uh, this, is, this is actually really key, so don't tune out on me. I know I'm, I'm giving you details, but this is important. So around the outer perimeter of the, the temple, you can just go online, you can Google kind of a, a bird's eye view or a floor plan of the temple. And uh, there was there was an inner court. There was an outer court. There was uh, uh, an area that the men could go. Uh, an outer uh, place where the women could go. They. Uh, yeah, I know. And then there was a, and then there was a, a dividing wall, and the the Gentiles uh, could only go so far. The the Gentiles, there was literally a physical wall that was preventing them from going any further, any closer in. And and the idea of the temple is that the the closer in you got, the more holy it was. And so only the priests go, could go into uh, the innermost part. Nobody could go behind the curtain except uh, once a year um, and uh, and all that kind of stuff. So as you go up, the Gentile portion was the outer portion of the outer courtyard. And uh, and I, I told you this story uh, a couple of weeks ago, but let me just give you a flesh out a couple more details here. So um, this is uh, the, the, the portion of the temple. <gasps> Don't worry, I'm not going to shake hands at the back after uh, the service. Um, the... Uh, What's interesting to note is that Jesus twice in his ministry, um, twice in his ministry, drove out, cleaned the temple, right? So there's there in John chapter two, uh, there's an instance where at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says that's where he fashioned the whip and he drove out the money changers, right? And then in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There is another account where he cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry, after the triumphal entry, when he went, went back into Jerusalem. And just as a side note, this is one of those places in Scripture that critics of the Bible point to and say, "See, there's there's inconsistencies here. One one uh, gospel account says that Jesus did this at the end of his or at the beginning of his ministry, and the other ones say that he did it at the end." Well again, that's only, that's only a, uh, an error in the Bible. If you don't understand that these are two distinct events that twice Jesus cleansed the temple, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. And what's interesting here, I'll just give you, actually, you know what? We got a, we got a little bit of time. Go to, go to Leviticus. I just want you to see it. It's, it's, it's cool. Leviticus chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 33. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for your possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession, then he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, There seems to to me to be some case of disease in my house. Then the priest shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the disease, lest all that is in the house be declared unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in to see the house, and he shall examine the disease. And if the disease is in the walls of the house with a greenish or reddish spots, and if it appears to be deeper than the surface, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house for seven days. And the priest shall come again on the seventh day and look, if the disease has spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take out the stones in which the disease, in which is the disease, and throw them into the unclean place outside the city. And he shall have the inside of the house scraped all around, and the plaster that they scrape off, they shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city. And they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones, and he shall take other plaster and plaster the house. If the disease breaks out again in the house, After he has taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, then the priest shall go and look. And if the disease has spread in the house, it is a persistent leprous disease in the house. It is unclean. And he shall break down the house, its stones and timber, and all the plaster of the house, and he shall carry them out of the city to the unclean place. Now, jump ahead to Matthew chapter 23. On on cursory reading, that might just seem like a really wise way for God to instruct his people not to tolerate mold in their house. But what's going on here, I think, is is, uh, is, this is foreshadowing what Jesus was going to do in his ministry. Matthew chapter 23, I I don't have time to read it all, but you can read it. This is um, throughout the book of Matthew. We studied through the book of Matthew, right? And throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus has all of these encounters with the Pharisees. And all of the conflict with the Pharisees culminates at this moment in Matthew 23, when he begins to just declare woes and judgment on the Pharisees. And so, um, verse 36 says, Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. After he's doled out a bunch of um, uh, curses on the Pharisees. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is verse 37, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house, Jerusalem's house, is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the disciples understood what he meant by that when he said, see, your house will be left to you desolate, because look at what they asked in, in verse 2 of Matthew 24. Um, sorry, they asked him uh, in verse 1. Jesus left the temple, so he was saying all that. He was declaring all those woes on the, on the Pharisees. He said, Jesus left the temple and was going away With when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And he answered them, uh, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will be not be one left here, one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us when these things will be. And so, What's happening there, and this is why Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning and the end of his ministry. Let me try to bring all of this together for you in five minutes. Um, the both times that Jesus cleansed the temple, the money changers and those who were selling animals for sacrifice were set up in the outer court of the Gentile, the outer court of the Gentile in the, in the temple. And so when he was driving them out, right, this is why he said, my house shall be called, my father's house should be called the house of prayer for all nations. What, what was happening is that when Solomon built his temple, right, under the direction of God, he built the temple in such a way that would include a space for Gentiles to come and worship God. And Herod, when he was in the middle of rebuilding the temple, which is the temple that we see in Jesus' day, again created a place under the direction of God with the blueprints that God gave for the temple for the Gentiles to come and worship God. So though the temple blueprints made provisions for the nations to come and worship the God of Israel, practically that wasn't able to happen because they had set up all their money changers and all the animal uh, selling that was going on in um, the area that was dedicated to the Gentiles. (coughs) And so Jesus drives them out recognizing that Israel was not recognizing the nation's place to be able to come and worship God. They'd neglected their responsibility as the conduit through which God was reaching the nations. And so he drove the money changers out. And, and just think about that. If, if you've ever gone on a trip anywhere and you forgot to change your money and you go to get uh, your money exchanged at the airport and they gouge you, that's essentially what they were doing there. They were set up there because you couldn't offer pagan money Um, to the temple. That was considered um, not a good thing. And so they would have to change their money there. And of course they would get gouged there. And then of course you had to buy animals to offer your sacrifice to the temple. And sometimes it was hard to travel with the animals that you're going to sacrifice. So you'd get them there. And of course they'd be marked up. It's like buying anything at an airport really. And so, and so what you get is Jesus driving the people out, recognizing not only are you setting up in the exact place that my word makes provision for God's, uh, for uh, pagan nations to come and worship me. But you're also taking advantage of them as they travel from these foreign nations, uh, making money off exchanging uh, both animals and money for them. So he drives them out saying, this is not what this was for, this area. And by the way, this um, in, in Herod's temple, this was about 30 to 35 acres the, the area, uh, the temple's huge. Um, but it's about 30 to 35 acres. This was not like Jesus fashioned a whip and drove people out. And they, they, this is like an all-day job. Jesus going from table to table, turning it over, making a huge ruckus. I mean, this is... You know, when Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, (laughs) I came to bring division. This is the Jesus who came to bring division, cleansing the 30 acres of Gentile real estate from the temple, saying, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for the nation. So why do I tell you all of that? The reason I tell you all of that is because what happens at, at Pentecost is as if God took his arm, reached down, took hold of the temple and turned the temple inside out. Because if you were worshiping in the innermost part of the temple, the place that you would hear pagan tongues, the place that you would hear pagan babble was along the outer rim, along the periphery. And what God does is now he sets up each one of his apostles with a flaming tongue ahead of him like an altar, speaking in the tongues of pagans at the center, and the pagans coming to hear the mighty works of God in their own language. So now, the pagan Babel is not on the outer rim of the Gentile regions of the, of the temple, they're in the innermost, they're in the upper room, at the altar of each one of the apostles, speaking in this pagan tongue so that the nations can come and worship God. It's an amazing picture. And, and, and to go further, what we recognize that God, Jesus was the one who made this possible on the cross because we, as soon as Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn, right? And so Jesus, when he uttered these words and he cleansed the temple once, right, he came back and cleansed it again and then according to Leviticus 14, what happens after that? The, the house gets destroyed. Jesus prophesied it. He says, not one stone will be left on another, And it was only one generation after that, in 70 AD, when Rome marched on Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. I've been to the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount was not actually part of the temple. It was a retaining wall. And you can go and you can look, and it's very true. Not one stone is left on another. It has not been rebuilt, it is in ruins. Why? Because Jesus went there once, saw that it had a leprous disease and cleansed it. He went a second time, he recognized it had a leprous disease, he cleansed it, and what happens a generation later, Israel has still not learned that Jesus is the Messiah and he came to save people of every ethnic background and gather all of them for God's glory. They still did not recognize that and so the temple was destroyed. The house was torn down. Just as God says it needed to be in Leviticus chapter 14. So this is this amazing historical moment when God is essentially doing himself what Israel had failed to do for generations, and that is, invite all people of every tongue and every tribe to worship the God of Israel. A few points of application. Number one, be filled with the whole, actually, you know what, I'm, so- <laughs> I'm sorry. I got all excited. Okay, so that third point, I, I, I was only on point three A. Here's point three B. <laughs> It's important, so just give me a sec here. Okay, the Holy Spirit, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit is for the evangelization of the world, and every manifestation is meant to that end. So I told you all the background. Now, here's the actual, here's the actual point. The point is, is that we think of Pentecost as the place where Christians get endowed with the powers to heal and to speak in tongues and to prophesy and all these sorts of things. But that's not what the story is about, the the story is about God giving his people power to evangelize the nations. That's the point. And so every manifestation of the spirit that we see in Christian circles anywhere are meant to that end. It's for the evangelization of the world. It's for evangelism. It's not that God poured out his spirit so that we can be healed of every affliction within our body. That's, that's not it. Now, does God sometimes in his sovereignty choose that the means through which he heals his people is through the prayers of, of us? But yes, of course. But the healing of an individual is only good insofar as it evangelizes the world. Because at the end of the day, God cares far less about your physical body here and now than he does about your soul and the souls of the people around you for eternity. So all of the manifestations of the Spirit that are made possible because of the Holy Spirit pouring out onto God's people at Pentecost, it's for the evangelization of the world. And so many times, so many times I hear this, that, oh, we don't see the same sorts of power that we saw in the book of Acts anymore. Where's the power gone? Is it not the same Spirit? Yes, it's the same Spirit, but the Spirit was poured out so that we could evangelize the world. The the Spirit was not poured out so that God would answer every one of our prayers in our community with the walls up and the shades drawn. That's not what the Holy Spirit is for. The Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost so that, right, this is what what Peter says, in the last, he says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, he says all those things in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, this, this, this pouring out of the spirit, it's for that, it's so that people will call on the name of the Lord and be saved, that's what the story is about, that's what the spirit is for, I told you it was a good point, aren't you glad I didn't go down to application? All right, so now, application, here's the application, <clears throat> number one, be filled with the Holy Spirit, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course, I didn't leave myself nearly enough time for this, but let me just try to summarize it very quickly. Ephesians chapter 1 is very clear that when you were saved, when you were converted, that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That means that everything that you need for life and for godliness was given to you at the moment of your conversion. Now, there is still a sanctification process. The spirit, the God still works in you. But when I say be filled with the Holy Spirit, what we recognize is that God pours out his spirit. He poured out his spirit once and for all in a demonstrative way at Pentecost. But God does pour out his spirit at times and places throughout human history for the evangelization of the world. This means that the, the, the power that we crave as Christians to see the Spirit of God work in the, in the powerful and explicit ways that we see in the book of Acts, it's not that those, those things can't happen anymore, it's that the Christian church is not on mission because it's on the mission field when you begin to see the power manifest. That's what you need to be filled with the Spirit for. The, God, God fills our uh, pours out His Spirit, fills us with the Holy Spirit, that we might move to Africa and become a missionary, that we might go and boldly preach the gospel to our neighbors and to our neighborhood. The Holy Spirit is poured out on you so that at that moment, in that awkward moment, Easter dinner with your family, and none of them know Christ, and suddenly you realize that your mouth is moving, and you don't understand what's going on, and you realize that God gave you the words. When we are bold, and we begin to move out in evangelism, and begin to actually do what Christ call, commanded us to do, make disciples of every nation, that means your family, that means your neighbors, that means Ingersoll, that means Tempsford, that means Canada, that means North America, that means Timbuktu, It means all of those places, but the Holy Spirit's power is meant for evangelism. So we cannot sit back, not involved in evangelism, and then say, we don't see any power anywhere. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, and what I mean by that is pray that the Holy Spirit would manifest in you, and then go and evangelize. Go get involved in the thing that the power is promised for, and that's the second part. Spend your life on disciple-making. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and spend your life on disciple-making. And I promise you, that means don't spend your life trying to build up your own empire, your own house. Don't, don't spend your life so insular that all you see is your family. That's exactly what Israel did, by the way, right? They built up their own nation, their own ha- uh, families, their own communities. This, the blessing of God is for us and no more. That's that was the sin that they were guilty of. Let's not be guilty of that sin. Let's take the blessings that God has given to us, and let's point them outward to the people around us. That's when we begin to see Pentecostal power. I hate that that word. I hate that the word Pentecost has been hijacked by um, uh, a very uh, kind of the, the, the charismatic movement. We've been so scared to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit because we've seen how crazy people get about it. And so you have Christianity sort of divided on the people who are seeking the power of the Holy Spirit and then those who are, are, are kind of just saying, uh, I'm just going to dig down deep into my Bible and, and worry about theology. And what we see in the book of Acts is this is where the power is, right? Know your Bible really well and dig down deep into it, and recognize that the Holy Spirit is going to empower His church for the evangelization of the world. And when those two things come together, that's when the book of Acts can happen. And remember, as we work our way through the book of Acts, remember that we are in Acts, there's 28 chapters, otherwise this isn't gonna make sense, but we're in Acts 29. We're still part of the story of what God is doing through His people on the earth. So. Pentecost is for the evangelization of the world and it was bold and it was amazing and it was powerful, but it was for a purpose. So when we ask God for power, when we ask God for the spirit, it is going to stir us to get out of our comfort zones and begin to evangelize in the spheres that God has placed us in. That's where we'll see the power. Otherwise, we have no right to ask for it.